there was a terrific, terrible, horrible earthquake in Syria and Turkey last week that registered 7.8 on the Richter scale. Many collapsed buildings, thousands of dead. Why would God allow this? Stay with me. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Ray Delnick, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. My name is Michael Ray Delnick. I'm the Dean and Professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, coming to you live from the traveling studio in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm grateful to Scott Curtis and WGNB, Moody Radio, Grand Rapids. Actually, we're in Zeeland, Michigan. That's where we are. And, uh, Thank you for letting me use your studio here, Scott. Really grateful for that. I'm glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you, taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. If you have a question today, just give me a call. The phone number here is 877-548-3675. Same number as always, 877-548-3675. In the studio in Chicago is our producer, Tricia McMillan, Handling all things technical is Courtney Young and answering the phones, Charles Coletta. Well, it's time to go get yourself a cup of coffee, open your Bible, because we're going to study the scriptures together. But before we get to your questions, let's talk about the natural disaster in Turkey. Where was God? The earthquake in Turkey and Syria Syria was so large that as of yesterday, it was reported that the number of those who died had risen to 22,000 people. When events like this happen, whether an earthquake or a tsunami or any other natural disaster, people want to know, why did God allow it? They also want to know why God allows personal evil, whether a terrible illness or a shooting. And since I'm on the radio answering questions about God every week, you'd think I would have a good answer. I don't. No one has a simple or satisfying answer for such painful, complex questions. But I do have some thoughts that help me when I struggle with this problem. So here are six concepts that we can embrace about why a good God allows evil and suffering in this world. First, it's an absolute truth that God is sovereign over everything, including suffering. No natural disaster or personal struggle or any evil experience we can encounter can cause God to be surprised. God knows it all. He says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Just as God is the sovereign creator, so he's sovereign over all disasters. Second, our problem is that we don't know his purposes. It's a terrible mistake to assume that God's purposes are even knowable. That's why God declared through Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God's omniscient plans and purposes are way beyond our finite human ability to understand them. Third, we need to remember that the tragic events that we see are not necessarily related to some specific behavior of nations or individuals. Evil things happen 
because we live in an evil, fallen world. As a result, people get terminal diseases, planes crash, tidal waves overwhelm communities, and earthquakes shatter nations. Paul wrote in Romans 8.22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The whole world is groaning because it's fallen. Fourth, Jesus taught in Luke 13, Jesus taught that disasters, whether natural or man-made, are a reminder of God's mercy. Responding to the question of why God allowed evil, the Lord Jesus said that bad things happen to some people, not because they are more evil than others. According to the Lord Jesus, if God were to act based on our behavior, disaster and devastation would be the norm, not the exception. It would happen all the time. We all sin. And if God responded based on what we deserve, we'd all be devastated all the time. This is what Jeremiah meant when he wrote, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. He wrote that in Lamentations 3.22. It's only God's loving mercy that prevents him from destroying all of us instantaneously. Fifth, God uses suffering to remind us to turn to him. When we see natural disasters strike others, Jesus said that this was the reminder for us to turn to God before we perish as well. You can see that in Luke 13, verses 3 through 5. That's the very reason the psalmist wrote, I turn to the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. It's in my distress that I turn to him. Psalm 120, verse 1. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses our pain and sorrow to get our attention and remind us to turn to him for comfort. Sixth, God uses tragic events to remind us that we're not home yet. It's so easy to get overly comfortable here on earth and never want to leave as if this temporal life was all that God has for us. But he offers us eternity. Suffering on this earth reminds us that God intends a far better home for us in the future. These present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, Romans 8.18. Suffering and adversity remind us not to allow ourselves to become overly comfortable here. It's God's great reminder that this world is not our real home. Suffering makes us remember that if we know the Lord Jesus, we're citizens of a far, far better world, a future world where every tear will be wiped away and all pain and sorrow will be removed. One last thought. Dorothy Sayers said that when it comes to human suffering, sorrow and death, all that, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. In the Messiah Jesus, God entered this world as a fully human person and not only suffered with us, but suffered for us, that through his death and resurrection, we can have life forever. Well, we're going to take a look at the scriptures now. And Trish, I got to tell you, I I don't see uh, any questions coming up here. So maybe you can tell me who's who's up now. Jay in Gurney, Illinois. Uh, welcome to Open Line. How can I help you today? 
Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, so my question is uh, from First Peter uh, 2, uh, verse 5, and uh, Colossians 1.10. So um, what are the spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God? And how can I, as a sinful human being, be worthy of the Lord? Well, no, you can't be worthy of the Lord. Uh uh, nor can I. No one can be worthy of him. Uh, we have, first of all, just remember this. We have infinite worth to God. Uh, uh, we have infinite worth to God. And uh, because of that, uh, he paid an infinite price to redeem us. The the offering of his one and only son. That's So don't think that when I say we're not worthy it means that we have no worth. We have a great deal of worth to God, an infinite price he paid to show that. However, uh, we're not worthy. We can't ever be worthy. We can't, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to distinguish between worth and worthy. We're not worthy, but we do have great worth. Uh, And I think that's important because we're made in the image of God. He's paid an infinite price to redeem us. Secondly, what is our spiritual sacrifice? I think it's the same thing that Romans 12.2 is talking about, that our sacrifices, we offer him sacrifices of praise, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, That's what we offer in response to what he has done for us. But I think when it talks about our spiritual sacrifices, it's similar to Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Uh, And so what it's saying here is that we offer ourselves to him. That's our sacrifice. It is, uh, we say everything we have every day, we offer it on the altar and we give it to him. You know, the old joke about why we have to do this daily. Uh, the problem with living sacrifices is keep crawling off the altar. So we have, offer <laughs> praise to him daily. We, we, we keep offering ourselves to serve him. And so basically, our spiritual sacrifices is our service to him. We will do whatever, whenever, wherever he wants us to serve him. We have to make ourselves available every day so that we can serve him completely. Okay? That's what it's talking about okay. there. Okay. Hey, I Appreciate hope I that. hope everyone listening, this is one of the great challenges. I never even thought of this. I came to Moody Bible Institute uh, 49 years ago as a student, and my very first class, uh, I had a professor, I, I don't know where he is, if he's with the Lord today. His name was uh, Mr. Winslet, and he went over this passage and said, this is, okay, this is your daily experience, and what a great reminder to me. Uh, that's something we need to do on a daily basis. Okay, I hope everyone else is listening, saying, "Okay, Lord, what can I do for you? How can I serve you today?" Anyway, thanks for your call. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to take more of your questions. If you have a question about the Lord, if you have a question about the Bible, if you have a question about the spiritual life, give me a call. The phone number is eight seven seven five four eight three six. Stay right there. We'll be back in a moment with more of your questions right here on Open Line. 
with Michael Radelnik. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Radelnik, coming to you from the heartland today, Grand Rapids, Michigan area. People have asked me, what's with the whole kitchen table, Radelnik? Well, when I planted a congregation many years ago on Long Island in New York, we rented a meeting room at first, but we had no offices. And as a result, most of the time I met with people and taught the Bible sitting around the kitchen table in my house. And that worked so well. After we got a building, I kept doing that. I kept meeting with people and teaching the Bible. And sometimes when someone would come to faith, I would sit with them and they would ask me Bible questions. And uh, we'd just sit around the kitchen table, two, three, four people. They'd ask Bible questions, and I'd do my best to answer them. And there were so many people who began to listen regularly and began to give monthly here at Moody that we called them kitchen table partners because it reminded me this whole kitchen table uh, concept, the radio kitchen table, reminded me of what I used to do sitting around Uh, the table in my home. Well, I'm so grateful for Kitchen Table Partners. Uh, These are the people who give monthly to Open Line so I can answer questions weekly. I'm so grateful for them, and I'm grateful for every listener, of course, but uh, maybe you'd consider becoming a Kitchen Table Partner. Or maybe you used to be a Kitchen Table Partner and maybe want to start up again. Or maybe you give occasionally for whatever resource we're offering. Uh, every couple of months, we offer these resources for two months, and people sometimes give it. Maybe you'd like to become a kitchen table partner and make it a regular habit. Whatever. If you would like to do that, I'd sure appreciate it. Uh, and if you do, I'll send you a Bible study moment every other week. It's a digital Bible study, an audio Bible study that comes in your email. You click on it. In a few minutes, you can hear a Bible study that I prepare for you. Uh, it's my way of saying thanks for joining the kitchen and becoming a kitchen table partner. Uh, to become a kitchen table partner, just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And we're going to speak next with Colin in Greensboro, Georgia, listening to WPMA. Welcome to Open Line, Colin. How can I help you today? Hi. Um, I have a pretty interesting question. Um, Second uh, Samuel twenty one seventeen tells of how David's men made the determination that he shouldn't go on the battlefield anymore when he almost died. So I was wondering, was that the right choice? Because some say, like it says, with the Bathsheba said, kings were supposed to go out to war. So his men making that decision, was that taking him out of the hands of having father's choice, whether or not to kill him on the battlefield or not? Was that right for them to try to preserve him? Like it said, they said, preserve the lamp of Israel, so it not be extinguished. So was it right for the man to try to save his life? Or should he kept his life in the hands of yeah. Heavenly Father, whether or not Heavenly Father would kill him or not on the battlefield? Well, it seems like to me, when you look at the story in Second Samuel 11, uh, obviously David, it says in Second Samuel 11, when in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers in all Israel. But David stuck around. So I think what it, it, this is implying in that passage in Second Samuel 11, that David was really much more uh, vibrant and strong enough to go out to battle. And he was just taking a little bit of a sabbatical or not, 
not being as active as he should have been. I think by the time you come to chapter 21, he's learned that lesson and he was still going out to battle, but he was getting old by the time we get to chapter 20, 21. And so David's men swore to him, you must never again go out with us to battle. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. In other words, his role in leading Israel was so necessary they didn't want to see him die on the battlefield. They said, we'll take care of this. I think that's just a, a bit of recognition of his age and I think his gathering weakness. You have chapter 22, one of his Thanksgiving Psalms about how God proved himself, felt self, how the Lord proves, proved himself faithful in all his battles. So it's sort of looking back on his career as a warrior. And then chapter Chapter 23 has his last words. And so uh, it seems to me that this was a, a good idea. By the way, this same song of Thanksgiving basically is in Psalm 18. Uh, and 23 of David's last words, is it's approaching the end of his life, and that's why they did it. I think it's perfectly good. I know that I'm still vibrant and strong. I have two adult sons. They don't, whenever it snows in Chicago, they don't say, Dad, uh, you just stay inside. We'll come and and snow blow and and clear the walks and do all that for you. So apparently they don't think I'm too old. Uh, I'll know I'm old when they say to me, you know what, you stay inside, we'll take care of, the, of clearing the walk and, and the driveway. And that's sort of what happened with David here. You're, you're, stay home, you know, we don't want you to die in battle. You're, you're weakening, you're getting older. So uh, that to me is, I think, Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. That sounds very, that sounds good. Thank you. We are having some technical difficulties again with Michael offsite. He's up in uh, the Grand Rapids area at our sister station and we are connected, but we are unable to hear him right now. Um, and so we are working on that technical difficulty. If you have a question, um, you can write down our phone number. Our phone number is 877-548-3675. Um, our lines are full right now, though, so write it down. Try again in a few minutes, and when someone hangs up, then you can get through. You can also send in your questions to Open Line at our website. We have a little form there called Ask Michael a Question, and our website is openlineradio.org. You can go there and find most of the things that Michael talks about on the air. Um, you'll find our resource for the month. You'll find um, how to become a kitchen table partner like he was just talking about. And you'll find a way to send us your questions with the Ask Michael a Question um, uh, form there that you can fill out. There's also a link to Michael's website where you can read his blogs that he often uses for the opening words. Um, and we are, um, when when technology gets involved, <laughs> causes some interesting issues that you don't normally have, um, but we've got great staff working on that um, as we continue to try and get Michael um, back online with us. Um, Here I am. I'm back. He is back, thankfully. So okay. sorry about that. Okay. We never had that happen in all these years, and the last two weeks in a row had that. Isn't that amazing? Uh, 
Anyway, can you guys hear me now? Everyone good? Good. Okay. Uh, did you guys, I, I don't even know when this happened. Uh, did, did my answer to Colin come through? Yes. Okay. Uh, so we're going to talk with Bessie now. Welcome to Open Line, Bessie. How can I help you? Hi, yes. Yeah. So I have a question about the um, end times. Um, I've always been kind of a pre-rapture um, person, pre-millennials, and our church teaches that, although they don't require it for membership. But recently, a family left the church over their views change into a post-millennial view and how important that is, and it changes all your hermeneutics and so I've been doing a lot of research, and I'm I'm just confused now. Okay. <laughs> and just didn't know if you had a resource or something. I've listened to so many different people speaking about it, and you know how important is this, and what is a good resource for me to look at? Okay. Well, first of all, I think the most important aspect about prophecy is that Jesus is coming back. Uh, right. Uh, secondly, I think that one of the more important rules. You know how you play games with your kids. Uh, we mm-hmm. we need to uh, play by the rules when we interpret the Bible as well. And I what I think is funny is when you get the reason that you get variations of uh, various end time layouts, schemes, whatever you want to call them, uh, whether it's pre mill, uh, ah mill, post millennial, whatever, like you just talked about. Uh, mm-hmm is because people are changing the rules of the game. They're playing, if you remember the cartoon strip, Calvin Ball, uh, uh, Calvin yeah. and Hobbes, there was a cartoon strip called Calvin and Hobbes and Calvin would play Calvin Ball and it was like baseball, but he would just change the rules with every play and just play whatever he wanted. And uh, I think sometimes people play Calvin Ball with their uh, Bible interpretation rules. I think we need to play by the rules. And if you will interpret the Bible in a consistent normal way uh, to take the things that are literal to be literal, the things that are to be figurative to be figurative in a normal hermeneutic, the result will be a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial interpretation of the second coming. Uh, is it and that's essential? that's what I keep coming back to. <laughs> yeah. Is it essential for faith? Absolutely not. Obviously, your church doesn't require it for membership. Uh, we can have fellowship, and I can have fellowship at least with people who I differ with on this issue. However, let me just say, I think there's a great book that Moody Publishers has that's a big overview. It's written by Paul Benware, and it's called Understanding End Times Prophecy. I think if you're interested in the subject to see why a normal biblical interpretive method yields a pre-trib, pre-mill, end time uh, schematic, that's that's what you should read. If you're just interested in Bible and, and prophecy, uh, l- let me tell you about our current resource, okay? Uh, it was written by okay. Charlie Dyer. He was on the program last week answering questions about prophecy. You can go back and listen to that if you want. It's a great little book that he's written. It's called, What Does the Bible Say About the Future? There's 30 questions about prophecy, Israel, and the end times. It's easy to understand. It's a biblical guide for understanding God's prophetic word. And not, I'm not looking for a gift here from you, but I'm just letting you know uh, we're offering it to anyone who's listening. Uh, if they, if you give a gift of any size to Open Line, when we'll say thank you, 
by sending you a copy of What Does the Bible Say About the Future? And if you'd like to give a gift and receive that, uh, just go to openlineradio.org or call 888-644-7122. That's a very basic book. If you want something a little bit more in-depth, uh, I recommend going to the Moody Publishers catalog, Understanding End Times Prophecy by Paul Benware. Uh, I think that would be a help to you as well. Uh, okay. This, okay, Bessie. Uh, now, right, Paul Benware, uh, B-E-N-W-A-R-E. Yeah, you know, the Hebrew word for, okay. for son is uh, Ben. That's the Hebrew word. And so he always called himself son of Ware to me. But anyway, Paul Benware is a good <laughs> friend of mine. I was a, used to be a professor many years ago at Moody, uh, wrote a great book, uh, Understanding End Times Prophecy. I think the revised edition is out now. I endorsed that one. Uh, so you'll see that I said this is the best book you can get on the topic if you pick it up. Uh, you just go to your favorite okay. online bookseller or to moodypublishers.com, and you'll be able to, to uh, get a copy of that. Listen, here's the thing, uh, Bessie. We need to get the balance between looking for the return of the Lord, the blessed hope, uh, and having convictions about what the Bible teaches while also having tolerance and love for believers who have different perspectives uh, who we can still have fellowship with. Uh, and, and as long as they're looking for the blessed hope, uh, we can say we, we look for the Lord Jesus together. Anyway, we'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. Trisha McMillan's going to be joining me with the mailbag, so don't go away. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Radonik. We'll be right back. So glad you're joining me today. And uh, amazingly, uh, everything seems to be working right now. So I'm glad to say that Trisha McMillan is joining me. She's brought the mailbag in and she's, we're going to try, I'm going to try and answer the questions you've mailed in. Hey, Trisha, how you doing? Doing all right. Yeah. Well, you know, other you, than filling. <laughs> uh, uh, so today's the last day or is, is tomorrow the last Tomorrow's day? Tomorrow's the or? last day that people can enter to win a trip for two to Israel to go with you um, to Israel and Dr. Joe Stoll in June. It's June 4th through the 15th. It ends tomorrow, Sunday night at midnight. So like at the end of Sunday, so Monday morning, midnight central time. Mm -hmm. So so do it now. If you have not entered, you only need to enter once. It's a trip for two um, to go with. Dr. Rydelnik and Dr. Joe Stoll and tour the land of Israel <laughs> with all of the things included and the hotels and the travel and all of those things. You can find all of the um, all of the rules and the specifics on our website, openlineradio.org, but mm -hmm. it does end tomorrow. So if you have not entered, now's your chance. Well, uh, the... Uh I think that'd be great because uh, people don't know that there's only the thing is full, but there are two spots left. You, you win and you get to bring a friend or your spouse or whoever you want to go with you. That'll be a lot of fun. Bring your son, your daughter. Uh, but uh, you get to go with Trisha McMillan. I think that, you know, Dr. Joe Stoll's going to be there and I'll be there. But 
Trisha and her husband Nate will be joining us as well. Yes. So uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So did you, did you have you worked out the babysitting yet? Yes, babysitting is is roughly worked out. <laughs> Not the specifics mm-hmm. of this day and this day, but the general is worked out. Yeah, they'll get mm-hmm. lots of grandma and grandpa time with both sets. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's it'll great. be good. Okay, well, what do we got here? All right, our bag? first question is from Gordon in Florida, listens on moodyaudio.com, which, if you're not familiar with, is another place if you're looking for um, older broadcasts that you would like to listen to for Open Line or any of our Moody Radio programs, you can go to moodyaudio.com, and it is there is a full database of many, many, many of our programs, um, children's programming and and mm. our talk programs and lots of lots, lots and lots that you can find. Lots of open line programs past several years. But anyway, that's where Gordon listens. And he is looking for a recommendation uh, regarding society and local economies in Israel during the time of Jesus. A book or something that will give him a feel for being on the street, the functioning scene of everyday life, what finance, financial stuff in the economy was like. These types mm-hmm. of things. Are there um, any books that would kind of give us insight into what it was would have been like yeah. to live there? Well, th- here's a book that was written by a Jewish archaeologist. Uh, as far as I know, has never not a Messianic Jew, just a a, a, a traditional Jewish scholar. Teaches at University of North Carolina. Her name is Jody Magnus. J O D I Magnus. M A G N E S S. It's called Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit. That's the uh, the main title. Ready? Stone and Dung, oil, oil and Spit, Jewish Daily Life in the Time of Jesus. Hmm. So uh, now it's, honestly, it's this is a scholar who wrote it, so you've got to wade through you know footnotes and uh, maybe even see words you don't recognize, have a dictionary handy uh, to look it up. If, if you want, she might mention a Baraita or Tosefta, which are Jewish books that you may not be aware of because she's using Jewish sources to get this background stuff. So just so you know, you may, it's a little more technical than maybe, you know, an everyday person. But it's, it's a very good book, Stone and Dung, Oil and Spit, Jewish Daily Life in the Time of Jesus. Now, there's an old classic that you can get reprints of if you go to something like uh, the, the big, the very famous big online bookseller. Okay. Okay. They they, they do have them. It's by a nineteenth century Jewish follower of Jesus named. It was a great rabbinic scholar. His name was Alfred Edersheim. E D E R S H E I M. Alfred Edersheim was a rabbinical student who came to faith in Jesus through the ministry of the London Jews Society back in the 19th century. Anyway, he wrote a book called Sketches of Jewish Social Life. It's not pictures. It's just mean literary <laughs> sketches. Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Days of Christ or in the Time of Christ. I can't remember. Something like that. Jewish Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Time of Christ by Alfred Edersheim. Very helpful book. Uh, I read it, believe it or not, almost 50 years ago. One of the first books I ever read by a believer. Hmm. So, uh, uh, yeah, great book. Wow. All right. Yeah. Thank you. But, but you know, what it is, it's very, it's old, and as and it was written in German. So it's translated, and it's, 
again, I, it, it's the kind of book that should be edited to make it read a little more smoothly. Uh, it's it's got it suffers from 19th century German translation okay. into English. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. That's it. So, All right. So as long as we okay. remember that, if we read it, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're okay. good. Yeah. All right. So, someone actually, I had a college professor who said to me, "Michael, why don't you update that book and write it in English?" And I thought, "No, not not going to be me." But nevertheless, <laughs> that was something that he said. Anyway, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Sally is in South Dakota, listens on the website. She says she and her husband are kitchen table partners, and they love listening to the program each Saturday and have been listening for the last four or five years and grow a lot in their understanding of Scripture. She was studying um, 1 Peter 4.19, which says, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. She says she keeps this thought, entrust my soul to a faithful creator in mind as she wakes up in the morning and likes to compare translations when she reads verses, which is which can sometimes help you in your Bible study to understand um, more fully what the verse is talking about. That was my little aside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she was looking at the HCSB, which um, which says, so those who suffer according to God's will should while doing what is good, and trust themselves to a faithful creator. And it seems to say that as we do what is right, as opposed to the New American Standard, which she had, which is the verse I read before, that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Mm-hmm. And it seems, she's wondering, is this saying the same thing, or is one emphasize? seems like the HCSB is emphasizing our works a little more, um, or are they just two sides of the same coin and they're, they're, they're phrasing it is a little bit different? Can you help yeah. on this verse to well, understand it? Well, I, I did look it up in Greek. Okay. And uh, the it says uh, to entrust their souls, uh, the souls of them. Uh, uh, I'll read it to you. Uh, entrust their souls. Uh to a faithful creator, and then it says, in doing what is right. That's literally what it says. Okay. The, the question is, uh, in, that, in that participle uh, of doing what is right, uh, in right doing, uh, it's actually a noun. It's, a, 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 it's doing good seems to be singular, but it's feminine. And so, <laughs> so it's kind of a tough one. Uh, if it's referring to the people, you would expect it to be plural, and mm-hmm. they're doing what is right, or they're the, the people. Uh, if it's in his doing right, you would expect it to be masculine. Uh, and so I think that they're saying it's uh, the, the, the prob- probably the proper translation refers to the behavior of the people that doing good is just a feminine noun and it applies uh, to everyone. And so it's kind of one of those toss-ups. It's a very hard verse in Greek. And uh, I would probably lean to what the HCSB is you entrust yourself to a faithful creator while we are doing what is good. Okay. Okay. But 
Honestly, I looked it up in Greek and I thought, oh, I can see both translations because <laughs> it's a little confusing. Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, it's one of those uh, 55 45. I'll, I'll go with the HCSB <laughs> on that one. Okay. okay. All yeah. right. So, so the emphasis, though, then, I guess not emphasis, but at the end of the day, it is mm-hmm. what we are doing. Yeah. We are still doing good and yeah. also at the same time entrusting ourselves yeah. to the Creator. Yeah. I'll read you the net translation. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So we're suffering, and we we have to do two things. One, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Just say, okay, we're suffering. I still trust God. And then but we continue to do good as as they do good. Okay. 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 Thank That's you. What it seems like to me. Thank mm-hmm. you. And that was Greek translation on the fly from Dr. Yeah. Radelnik. <laughs> uh, so thank you okay. for that. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. And, and I think that the uh, Moody Bible commentary reflects more of the New American Standard translation, which is that God is the one that's going to be doing good for you. So okay. That's it. Okay. But, you know, I, I, in, cir- in circumstances of suffering, it is a tendency that we have to say, why should I do what's right or do good when God is allowing this to happen? I'm going to rebel now. But no, he says, well, you have to trust God and do right. That's what we have to do. Okay. So, yeah, All good right. reminder. Yes, yeah. yes, it we're, is. We're going to take a break here, Tricia. I'm so grateful. That's a really good question. Got me thinking, having to do Greek translation on the fly. Right. There we go. I like doing that. So, anyway, we're going to be right back with more of your questions in just a moment. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Rydonic, so don't go away. I'm waiting here for your question, um, and I'll do my best to answer it. Be right back. To open line, I'm Michael Rydelnik. My mom, many of you know, I've mentioned this before, my mom actually survived the Holocaust, but she did so as a Jewish follower of Jesus. And she actually told me that when she was working, she was an RN, she was working as a nurse in the infirmary of the Ludge Ghetto when she was first taken. And uh, it was in a building that was taken over from the pre-World War II Chosen People Ministries Center in Ludge, Poland. She also told me of the many Jewish believers she encountered in the ghettos and in the camps. And it's why I find this month's offer from Chosen People Ministries, one of our Open Lines underwriters, so intriguing. It's called Never Again, The Holocaust Remembered. It's a collection of stories from the Chosen People Ministries archives detailing the courage, bravery, and grace found in the midst of the unspeakable tragedy of the Holocaust. It reminds us that the Lord is still at work, and he was still at work during those horrible days. And it encourages us to stand up for the Jewish people today and pray for the peace of Jerusalem and oppose the growing anti-Semitism of today. For your free copy of this intriguing book, Never Again, The Holocaust Remembered, just go to the Open Line Radio website. That's openlineradio.org, our website, Not Chosen People, Scroll down, you'll see a link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Never Again, The Holocaust Remembered. And we're going to speak next with uh, Chris in Carpentersville, Illinois. 
listening on WMBI. Welcome to Open Line, Chris. How can I help you? Oh, good morning. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for how you opened the show with the six um, reasons of what's been going on and suffering. That wow. was something I really, really needed to hear. Um, but anyway, my question um, uh, in, in Bible Study Fellowship this year, we're studying uh, Kings and Chronicles, uh, especially as it relates to the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And my question has to do with the high places, because over and over and over again, it, you know, the kings are mentioned where they're making reforms, you know, they're in their conviction, they're cleaning out the altars and the idols, but they left the high places. So what I'm trying to kind of figure out, and I've been searching the, the Moody commentary and, uh, you know, everything that they give me, um, but exactly um, what what were these places? What was the purpose of um, these places, what they're doing? What um, sets them apart from just the other, I, you know, the reforms against idolatry? And then the kind of the second part of the question is, is there, are there high places today that, that we need that may be happening within the church? So I have a big question, so I'm just going to sit okay. back and listen. Okay, here we go. Well, first of all, I, I'm glad you looked up in the Moody Bible Commentary, but there's another book that I think everyone should have if they're serious about Bible study, and it's where you could have found this answer. Uh, it's called A Bible Dictionary, and it's a one-volume, big, fat book, sort of like the Moody Bible Commentary, but it has—you could just look up High Place, and you get a, an article that would explain what High Places are. And Moody Publishers has a great one. It's called Ungers. That was it was uh, edited by Merrill F. Unger, U-N-G-E-R, great scholar. Uh, Moody has the Moody Publishers has the Ungers Bible Dictionary. But most Christian publishers have a really good Bible dictionary. And I would encourage you, Chris, get yourself a Bible dictionary. That's that's a, a worthwhile uh, a purchase. And uh, you know you don't have a ton of books, but that's a good book to have. And uh, uh, what a high place was, was in the various areas of Israel, the, the highest elevated places was where worship would take place. And very often, uh, the ancient Israelites would keep the Canaanite, worship the Canaanite Baalim, the Baals as we read about them in, in English, or Malach, uh, the god of the Moabites, uh, and they would set up in their town a spot. Uh, sometimes they were artificial high places. Sometimes they were just a hill. Uh, and they would set up a place of worship for Id- idols. And uh, there'd be uh, like a pillar or a, a wooden pole or, or just the idol itself. And they would be put up. Uh, in there on this elevated place with an altar, and they would offer sacrifice to these false gods. Now, there are also other high places, like, uh, think about it, uh, where the temple was finally put was on Mount Moriah. It was a high place in Jerusalem, and so that's where they put the temple. Uh, Before that, there were other high places of worship uh, where, uh, like, Samuel would go and offer sacrifices to the God of Israel. So there were high places that were designed for the worship of the God of Israel as well, uh, not just idolatrous ones. But when it's talking about the kings 
not taking down or taking down the high places like Hezekiah did. The the reason uh, it talks about that is once the temple was built, there were supposed to be no other high places. So the only other high places that continued to exist were the idolatrous ones, and that's what the kings were taking down. I think what you're asking, are there idolatrous areas in the church? Uh, certainly, I think that there are. I think that's what your question was. I, I think today, uh, sometimes we have the idol, the idol of uh, social media or uh, all kinds of things that we kind of, uh, sometimes it's politics. Uh, I think what we have to do is remember that we're here to serve God first and foremost and, uh, and not put anything in the place of God uh, as having greater priority. That is what I would consider an idol, wouldn't you? So is that what you were asking about the church? Well, kind of, sort of. I mean, kind of the way I'm sort of coming to understand it, and I, and I could be wrong, it's kind of an eisegetical search. But it, it almost seems like, was it kind of a blending of Judaism with idol worship, like a syncretistic thing, hedging your it, bets? It, it wasn't uh, syncretistic so much as it was adoption of the pagan worship of the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Edomites and all that around them. That's what it was. It wasn't, uh, it it wasn't really syncretizing Judaism with it or the old Testament worship with it. It was, uh, adopting wholesale, absorbing the cultural paganism surrounding them. That's what it was about. Uh, it, it is amazing. You can go to Megiddo. When we go to Israel, we go to Megiddo it's one of the great high places in the Old Testament, and you can see various levels because they had different levels. I think it's got 26 levels of civilization on Megiddo, and they cut in the, into the mount different places, and you can see how pagan the worship was with the symbols and things that still remain from ancient days. So, yeah, we have to be careful. We worship the God of the Bible and the God of Israel through the Lord Jesus and not any other thing. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's the first hour. Thanks for your call, Chris. Keep listening. There's a second hour of Open Line on most of these stations. If your station doesn't carry Open Line's second hour, you can always listen on the Moody Radio app or online. During the break, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. That's got all sorts of great links, past programs, a question link where you can put your questions, how to, how to get our Bible study resource for this month, how to become a kitchen table partner, how to get the chosen people resource. We're going to come right back with more of your questions in the second hour, so don't go away. Open Line with Dr. Michael Radelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. We'll be right back, so don't go away. 